millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of Timeline Tapes. I'm your host, Nate Fisher. Our YouTube channel, Timeline, has hundreds of fascinating documentaries to enjoy. But we know that not everyone has the time to sit back and watch a full-length feature. That's why we're turning our favorites into podcasts that you can enjoy wherever you are. Previously on the podcast, we explored the fraught relationship between Winston Churchill and the American President Franklin D. Roosevelt over several pivotal moments during the Second World War. You can check back in our feed to hear that episode. This week, we're delving into Churchill's alliance with Joseph Stalin and their duel over what kind of Europe would emerge after the war. Between the psychological battle of the two leaders came a secret intervention from Roosevelt, which would shape the outcome of the war forever. The voice of the show is actor David Morrissey, and it was written by Simon Burthen, the BAFTA-winning filmmaker who adapted the show from the book he co-wrote with Joanna Potts, called Warlords, an extraordinary recreation of World War II through the eyes and minds of Hitler, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin. On August the 15th, 1944, American and British troops invaded the south coast of France. Unlike D-Day in Normandy, 10 weeks before, Operation Dragoon, as it was called, has passed by relatively unnoticed. Yet behind it was a ferocious dispute. The landings had been angrily opposed by the British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. He told the American President, Franklin Roosevelt, they were... The first major strategic and political error for which we too have to be responsible. The festering sore which underlay Churchill's outburst was not about his enemy, Hitler, but his ally, the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin. Operation Dragoon was the final act in a mental duel between Stalin and Churchill, in which each man secretly plotted to impose his own will on the future of post-war Europe. As their duel progressed, Roosevelt entered the arena and also started to plot behind Churchill's back. Eventually, he'd become the pivotal figure upon whom the duel's outcome would depend. At stake was the future freedom and independence of hundreds of millions of people.
On the evening of Saturday, June the 21st, 1941, Winston Churchill held a dinner party at Chequers, the Prime Minister's country residence, in the Chiltern Hills outside London. Conversation was dominated by reports that Hitler was about to tear up his pact with Stalin and invade Russia. Among the guests was Churchill's private secretary, John Colville. The PM says he will go all out to help Russia. I said that for him, the arch-anti-communist, this was bowing down in the House of Rimen. He replied that he had only one single purpose, the destruction of Hitler, and his life was much simplified thereby. If Hitler invaded hell, he would at least make a favorable reference to the devil. In the small hours of June the 22nd, three million Nazi troops smashed their way into Russia. Immediately, the arch-anti-communist welcomed Stalin as an ally. But Stalin remained suspicious of Churchill and believed that what he really wanted was for Germany and Russia to destroy each other. Churchill, for his part, feared that Stalin would do another deal with Hitler. In December 1941, the British Foreign Secretary, Anthony Eden, went to Moscow to start negotiations for a formal treaty with Russia, which would try to dispel these mutual suspicions. As Eden arrived, the Red Army was counter-attacking, but German forces remained dangerously close to Moscow. Even so, Stalin was already thinking long-term. He intended to exact his price for carrying the brunt of the fight, particularly territory. Eden noted Stalin's demands. January the 3rd, 1942. As regards the special interests of the Soviet Union, Stalin desired the restoration of the position in 1941 prior to the German attack in respect to the Baltic states, Finland and Bessarabia. Stalin also wanted back the eastern part of Poland. In sum, all the territory he'd grabbed as part of the Nazi-Soviet Pact of 1939. Top of his list was the Baltic states, which had only gained their independence from Russia after World War I. Eden told Churchill, I am clear that this question is for Stalin the acid test of our sincerity. Nothing we and the United States of America can do or say will affect the situation at end of war. The Russians are victorious, they will be able to establish these frontiers, and we shall certainly not turn them out. Initially, Churchill was horrified by any thought of conceding to Stalin's demands. He replied to Eden, the 1941 frontiers of Russia were acquired by acts of aggression in shameful collusion with Hitler. The transfer of the people of the Baltic states to Soviet Russia against their will would be contrary to all the principles for which we are fighting this war. I know President Roosevelt holds this view as strongly as I do. These principles had been enshrined in the Atlantic Charter, which Roosevelt and Churchill had agreed during their meeting in Newfoundland in August 1941. Most importantly, they guaranteed the future freedom and independence of the nations conquered by Hitler. 
But Eden argued that what mattered more than principles was Stalin's cooperation, both now and in the future. Probably Stalin's demand is intended as an acid test to see what value we attach to that cooperation and what sacrifice of principle we're prepared to make in order to achieve it. In the coming weeks, Churchill's attitude began to be coloured by disastrous turns in the war. In the Far East, Singapore had fallen to the Japanese. The Battle of the Atlantic was grim. Finally, Churchill did an about turn. On March the 7th, 1942, he wrote to Roosevelt that the Baltic states could be sacrificed to keep Stalin on side. The increasing gravity of the war has led me to feel that the principles of the Atlantic Charter ought not to be construed so as to deny Russia the frontier she occupied when Germany attacked her. The next day, the British ambassador to Washington, Lord Halifax, was summoned to the White House to discuss Churchill's cable. Roosevelt showed himself just as willing as Churchill to sacrifice the Baltic states, though he preferred to do it more furtively. FDR's mind is already moving along the only remaining line, that is of saying to Stalin that we all recognize his need for security, that to put anything on paper now is impossible, that future of Baltic states clearly depends upon Russian military progress, and that neither United States nor Great Britain would or could turn them out. Why then should Stalin worry? As early as March 1942, Churchill and Roosevelt had shown themselves willing to give away the future freedom of three independent nations. They'd been driven by the fear that Stalin and Hitler would do another deal. But though the thought once or twice crossed the minds of both dictators, it was never a real possibility. Their submission to Stalin was unnecessary. It was also the beginning of a slippery slope. In May 1942, Stalin's foreign minister, Vyacheslav Molotov, dashingly clad in his flying gear, landed in Scotland. The first trip to Britain by a top Bolshevik since the revolution. Having nipped back into his plane to change into his suit, he took the train down to London. There, he was to finalize the treaty between Britain and Russia, which would conclude the negotiations begun in Moscow five months before. Stalin had given Molotov an extensive shopping list of territory that Britain must agree as part of the post-war Soviet Union. Then, suddenly, while Molotov was in London, Germany launched its summer offensive in Russia. Three Soviet armies were being smashed at the Battle of Kharkov. Stalin's priorities instantly changed. He was desperate for military help from the British and Americans. He cabled Molotov to sign the treaty and stop arguing about territory. That would look after itself. 24th of May, 1942. The question of future borders will be decided by force. The military relief Stalin wanted 
was a cross-channel invasion of France as a second front against Hitler. But Churchill believed it was premature and would be a disaster against the heavily defended French coast. In August 1942, he flew to Moscow to tell Stalin the invasion had to be delayed. It was an epic, dangerous journey, some 40 hours flying in a stripped-out American bomber via Gibraltar, Cairo, and Tehran in four long overnight stretches. His first steps on Russian soil came with a Chichilian rallying cry. We will continue hand in hand like comrades and brothers until every vestige of the Nazi regime has been beaten into the ground. General Alan Brooke, the British Chief of Staff, accompanied Churchill. He recorded this first ever face-to-face -face meeting of any of the other warlords with Stalin. August the 13th, 1942. The two leaders, Churchill and Stalin, are poles apart as human beings, and I cannot see a friendship between them such as exists between Roosevelt and Winston. Stalin is a realist with little flattery about him. Facts only count with him. Plans, hypotheses, future possibilities mean little. At their first meeting, Churchill said the invasion of France must be postponed till 1943. He then projected a vision of his alternative plan. He told Stalin that first the Allies would land in the northwest of Africa and drive the Germans out. Then he drew a map in the shape of a crocodile. The hard snout, he explained, was the heavily defended coast of France. Churchill said that rather than invade there, he wanted to attack Hitler in what he called the soft underbelly of Europe, the Adriatic and the Balkans. Stalin questioned him curtly, but politely. The next day, Stalin's mood turned vicious. He accused the British of cowardice. You British are too afraid to fight the Germans. If you tried it like us Russians, you would not find it so bad. Churchill reacted with eloquent fury. I have come all round Europe in the midst of my troubles. Yes, Mr. Stalin, I have my troubles as well as you, hoping to meet the hand of comradeship. And I am bitterly disappointed I have not that hand. Later that night, Churchill told his staff he would leave Moscow forthwith. But Stalin had been impressed by Churchill's passion. And on the third night, a banquet at the Kremlin broke the ice. From the beginning, vodka flowed freely and one's glass kept being filled up. The tables groaned under every description of hors d'oeuvre and fish, etc. Molotov was opposite Stalin and started proposing toasts within five minutes of our having sat down. These toasts went on continuously. By the end of the dinner, Stalin was quite lively, walking around the table to click glasses with various people he was proposing the health of. He is an outstanding man, there is no doubt about that, but not an attractive one. Whenever I look at him, I can imagine his sending off people to their doom without ever turning a hair. During the dinner, Churchill made an aside that Stalin was a peasant whom he could handle. His aides were horrified, and later, back in his room, 
warned him the Russians were bugging everything. Churchill said very loudly, The Russians, I have been told, are not human beings at all. They are lower in the scale of nature than the orang-utang. Now then, let them take that down and translate it into Russian. At times, it had been touch and go. But by the end of the visit, goodwill had broken out. PM was somewhat late, and no wonder. He went to see Stalin for final visit at 7pm, and remained with him until 3am. He had no time for bed, and after a bath, came straight to the aerodrome. The band played the Internationale, God Save the King, and the Star Spangled Banner, during which period we all stood to attention and saluted. As Churchill returned to his war-torn country, he believed he had at least established a working relationship with Stalin. He wrote to Roosevelt, On the whole, I am definitely encouraged by my visit to Moscow. Now they know the worst, and having made their protest, are entirely friendly. But just two months later, an extraordinary message from Stalin to his ambassador in London showed that Churchill's optimism was illusory. Stalin remained deeply suspicious of what he saw as Britain's lack of military support and repeated his long-held fears of Churchill's secret motives. We in Moscow get the impression that Churchill is aiming at the ultimate defeat of the Soviet Union in order then to come to some agreement with Germany at the expense of our country. Stalin even suggested that Churchill was intending to use Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess, who was in British captivity, as a negotiating lever with the Nazis. In the coming months, military success pushed political suspicion for a while to one side. Rommel was beaten at the Battle of El Alamein. The Americans and British landed successfully in the northwest of Africa. The Russians defeated the Germans at Stalingrad. Military success was bringing the post-war world nearer. Then, in April 1943, a shocking discovery put the shape of that world into sharp relief. Germany announced that the bodies of thousands of Polish officers had been found in Katyn Forest, shot by the Russians in the spring of 1940. Moscow angrily rejected the claims as Nazi propaganda. But at a private lunch, Churchill said, Alas, the German revelations are probably true. The Bolsheviks can be very cruel. Katyn had a devastating series of knock-on effects. The London-based Polish government in exile, the government for which Britain had gone to war, suspected the Russians were guilty and demanded an investigation by the International Red Cross. Stalin said the demand by the London Poles was a hostile act against the Soviet Union. He already disliked them, as they stood for a free and independent Poland. He now used the row over Katyn as an excuse to break off relations with them. Churchill was caught between his loyalty to the London Poles and his wish to preserve good relations with Stalin. 
Washington, Roosevelt sensed the tension Katyn was creating. He secretly decided it was time that he, rather than Churchill, became the prime mover in the relationship with the Soviet leader. On May the 5th, 1943, he wrote Stalin a private letter, asking for an informal one-to-one -one get-together. The only question was where. Iceland I do not like, because for both you and me it involves rather risky flights, and in addition would make it quite frankly difficult not to invite Prime Minister Churchill at the same time. Therefore, I suggest that we could meet either on your side or my side of the Bering Straits. Roosevelt dispatched an emissary, Joseph Davis, who'd been his ambassador to Russia in the late 1930s, to hand deliver the letter to Stalin. While Davis was in Moscow, Churchill was in Washington. He spent a fortnight with Roosevelt. Not once did the president breathe a word of his private approach to Stalin. On May the 26th, with Churchill safely gone, Roosevelt received a positive reply from Stalin. As I do not know how events will develop on the Soviet-German front in June, I shall not be able to leave Moscow during that month. I therefore suggest holding the meeting in July or August. But Roosevelt's secret plan was about to hit a snag. He and Churchill had decided to postpone the invasion of France to 1944. They believed British and American forces were still not strong enough to beat the German defenses. Stalin responded angrily to his allies' delay. The Soviet government cannot align itself with this decision, which was adopted without its participation. Churchill was worried by Stalin's hostile reaction. And by now, he had also got wind of Roosevelt's secret letter. He tried to flush Roosevelt out. All this makes me anxious to know anything you may care to tell me about your letter sent to Stalin by Mr. Davis and the answer which has been received from him. I will, of course, come anywhere you wish to a rendezvous. Churchill still had no inkling he was to be excluded. Finally, Roosevelt came clean. On June the 24th, his special envoy in London, Avril Harriman, went to Downing Street and told Churchill what had been going on. Churchill was shattered. He rang his foreign secretary, Anthony Eden. Went round to see Winston at midnight at his request found him considerably upset by a message from FDR that his projected meeting will be ardeur. Churchill not only felt personally betrayed, he could also sense the blow to British power. And he could see that Roosevelt, in trying to hijack the relationship with Stalin, was taking the first steps to an American-Russian partnership which would determine the future world. The next day, controlling his emotions as best he could, he wrote one of the most important letters of his life. Former naval person to president, personal and secret. Avril told me last night of your wish for a meeting with Uncle Joe in Alaska, adieu. You must excuse me expressing myself with all the frankness that our friendship and the gravity of the issue warrant. 
I do not underrate the use that enemy propaganda would make of a meeting between the heads of Soviet Russia and the United States at this juncture, with the British Commonwealth and Empire excluded. It would be serious and vexatious, and many would be bewildered and alarmed thereby. Nevertheless, whatever you decide, I shall sustain to the best of my ability here. Churchill had been kept in the dark for six full weeks by the ally he thought to be his friend. Four days later, Roosevelt replied with a flat lie. I did not suggest to Uncle Joe that we meet alone, but he told Davies that he assumed A, that we would meet alone, and B, that he agreed that we should not bring staffs to what would be a preliminary meeting. In August, Stalin finally turned down Roosevelt's request for a meeting, claiming the pressures of war as his excuse. For the moment, Roosevelt was thwarted. Beyond the deceit and the power play, the distressing episode left Churchill with a further troubling thought. Up until now, both he and Roosevelt had handled Stalin with kid gloves. But Churchill was becoming split-minded. On one side, he believed that he, as one great man, could deal with Stalin, another great man, by face-to-face -face diplomacy. But on the other side, the Katyn massacre had reawakened all his old fears of the Bolsheviks. A nightmare was forming that Stalin was at the head of a Russian colossus which would devour much of Europe before the British and Americans could get there and create a new totalitarian empire. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We are rejoining our story at a crucial moment for Winston Churchill, where he must decide on the best way to send troops towards Germany. Churchill had long feared that a cross-channel invasion against the heavily defended French coast would bring dreadful carnage. Instead, he favoured his alternative strategy of attacking Germany via the Adriatic and the Balkans. By the autumn of 1943, the British and Americans had landed in southern Italy. Churchill's vision seemed to him possible. But Stalin had sent angry cables, demanding that the Allies concentrate only on the invasion of France. Roosevelt's special envoy in Britain, Avril Harriman, reported to the president. Churchill's only explanation is that Stalin wants us to become involved in Western Europe to avoid our entry in the Balkans. Churchill was accusing Stalin of trying to use military arguments to further his political purpose of controlling Eastern Europe and the Balkans after the war. Later, in his memoirs, Churchill denied that at that stage, when Hitler was still far from beaten, he too tried to bend Allied military strategy to his political purposes, in Churchill's case, to keep Stalin out of Eastern Europe and protect British interests in the Eastern Mediterranean. But there is evidence that Churchill was being less than frank about his motives in the crucial last few months of 1943. In August 1943, the British and Americans met at Quebec to decide the next stage in the war. Churchill knew it would be fatal to suggest to Roosevelt that they should try to beat the Russians to the Balkans and Eastern Europe for political reasons. To Roosevelt, that would smack of the European imperialism he loathed. So Churchill argued for his alternative strategy on purely military grounds. But one chant remark revealed his inner thoughts. Stalin is an unnatural man. There will be grave troubles. At Quebec, Churchill reluctantly agreed to the American view that preparations for the invasion of France should take precedence over his alternative strategy. But back in London, Churchill began to renege. Further evidence of his political motives emerged at an extraordinary war cabinet meeting in early October. The Foreign Secretary, Anthony Eden, gave an account of what happened to Oliver Harvey, his private secretary. The PM spoke for three hours. He talked great nonsense, and A.E. was furious. The PM kept saying such things as, We mustn't weaken Germany too much. We may need her against Russia. The cabinet colleagues were horrified at all this. Churchill's remarks showed that Stalin's suspicions of 12 months before had not been so outlandish. Churchill now sanctioned a British operation against the island of Rhodes. Capturing Rhodes was a vital stepping stone in his alternative strategy. He hoped that it would bring Turkey into the war, providing an easy gateway to Eastern Europe. The American chiefs of staff thought it a wasteful diversion, 
Churchill pleaded his case to Roosevelt. I am sure that the omission to take roads at this stage and the ignoring of the whole position in the eastern Mediterranean would constitute a cardinal error in strategy. On military grounds, Churchill's chief of staff, General Brooke, was not against the operation. But why risk a row with Roosevelt? I am slowly becoming convinced that in his age, Winston is becoming less and less balanced. I can control him no more. He has worked himself into a frenzy of excitement about the Rhodes attack, has magnified its importance so that he can no longer see anything else, and has set his heart on capturing this one island, even at the expense of endangering his relations with the President. While Churchill fanatically plotted his alternative strategy, his foreign secretary, Anthony Eden, was attending a foreign minister's conference in Moscow. From there, Eden cabled Churchill that Stalin was continuing to insist his allies must concentrate only on the invasion of France, Operation Overlord, as it was now called. Churchill was livid. His doctor, Charles Moran, who kept contemporaneous notes of their conversations, which he later wrote up into a diary, recorded his reaction. October the 26th, 1943. When I called at number 10 this morning, I found the PM glowering over a telegram from Eden. His face was glum, his jaw set, misgivings filled his mind. Stalin seems obsessed by this bloody second front, he muttered angrily. I can be obstinate too. Damn the fellow, he said under his breath. Churchill now ordered Eden to tell Stalin that the invasion of France might need postponing in order to reinforce his favored campaign in Italy. In Washington, there was fury at Churchill's reckless disregard for agreed Allied strategy. The American War Secretary, Henry Stimson, noted in his diary. This shows how determined Churchill is with all his lip service to stick a knife into the back of Overlord, and I feel more bitterly about it than I ever have before. In Moscow, Anthony Eden and his team were just as angry. The PM is untamable. He cannot leave well alone, and he loathes the Russians. He would torpedo AE's conference lightheartedly. Churchill's plotting was getting him nowhere. And for Stalin, the Moscow conference had one pleasing outcome. It was agreed that all liberated territories would be administered by the occupying power. Stalin told his closest associates, Now the fate of Europe is settled. We shall do as we like with the Allies' consent. In November 1943, Churchill left Britain for a long trip, first to Malta. Amid the acclamation, he was angrier than ever. His campaign in the eastern Mediterranean was failing. German forces beat the British out of the Greek island of Leros. Churchill blamed it on the United States' refusal to supply enough resources. 
November the 18th, 1943. PM gave long tirade on evils of Americans and of our losses in the Aegean and Dalmatian coast. At this point, Churchill's wife, Clementine, hearing of her husband's vile mood, wrote him a long and soothing letter. My darling, I'm afraid that so far your journey has not been pleasant or refreshing. Your cold must have made you miserable and uncomfortable, and then I know Leros must cause you deep unhappiness. But never forget that when history looks back, your vision and your piercing energy, coupled with your patience and magnanimity, will all be part of your greatness. So don't allow yourself to be made angry. I often think of your saying that the only worse thing than allies is not having allies. From Malta, Churchill flew to Cairo. He was feeling better, and Clementine's letter helped to restore his spirits. Roosevelt had also traveled to Cairo, and, once in his presence, Churchill, as always, succumbed to his charms. He told his daughter, Sarah, I love that man. But Roosevelt refused all Churchill's pleas to discuss his alternative strategy. He continued to suspect Churchill's imperialist motives and told him, Winston, you have 400 years of acquisitive instinct in your blood, and you just don't understand how a country might not want to acquire land somewhere, even if they can get it. A new period is opened in the world's history, and you will have to adjust yourself to it. It was said teasingly, but threw Churchill into despair. He told Harold Macmillan, the British minister in North Africa. Germany is finished, though it may take some time to clean up the mess. The real problem is Russia. I can't get the Americans to see it. The final destination was Tehran, and the first face-to-face -face meeting of the three Allied warlords. This would be the defining moment in the Churchill-Stalin duel, with Roosevelt the pivotal figure. For the president, the problem was now Churchill and his backsliding on the invasion of France. Shortly before the conference began, Charles Moran found himself talking to Roosevelt's closest associate, Harry Hopkins. Harry Hopkins thinks that the PM is trying to get out of his commitments. Sure, we are preparing for a battle at Tehran, he threatened. You will find us lining up with the Russians. What I find so shocking is that to the Americans, the PM is the villain of the piece. They are far more skeptical of him than they are of Stalin. Superficially, Tehran was full of pleasantries. Churchill and Roosevelt presented Stalin with a sword to commemorate the victory at Stalingrad. Stalin handed it on to his army sidekick, General Voroshilov, who promptly dropped it. Churchill's birthday, his 69th, fell during the conference. He hosted a splendid dinner, and Roosevelt gave him a valuable cash and bowl with a note. With my affection, 
May we be together for many years. In this gathering of great men, Churchill's ambivalence towards Stalin re-emerged. He believed again he could do deals with him, and secretly agreed, without telling the London Poles, that Russia should have the part of eastern Poland it had gained under the Nazi-Soviet pact. Poland would be compensated with land from Germany. Roosevelt, fearing the potential reaction of Poles in America, did not want to be directly involved in the deal, but privately went along with it. Also, Churchill and Roosevelt confirmed to Stalin they would not oppose the Baltic states becoming part of the post-war Soviet Union. But when it came to the overriding issue of military strategy, on which Churchill believed the rest of Eastern Europe's future might depend, he was out on a limb. Stalin and Roosevelt insisted there should be no delay in Operation Overlord. Roosevelt then left Stalin the choice of which supporting operation the British and Americans should prepare, the Eastern Mediterranean, as Churchill wanted, or a follow-up invasion of southern France. Stalin declared, Our directive should stipulate, in conformity with the desires of the Russians, an invasion in the south of France. The operations in the Mediterranean of which Churchill speaks are merely diversionary. It was the killer blow. That night, after he finally lost the argument, Churchill returned to his room with Charles Moran. Now his other image of Stalin took over again, the future totalitarian oppressor. He pulled up abruptly so that he stood looking down at me, his eyes popping. I believe man might destroy man and wipe out civilization. Europe would be desolate and I may be held responsible. Until he came here, the PM could not bring himself to believe that face to face with Stalin, the democracies would take different courses. Now he sees he cannot rely on the president's support. What matters more, he realizes that the Russians see this too. Stalin will be able to do as he pleases. Will he become a menace to the free world, another Hitler? The PM is appalled by his own impotence. Churchill was defeated. Events in the coming months rubbed salt in his wounds. As the Red Army raced into Poland, the British and Americans were ground down in a long, hard slog in Italy. D-Day, the invasion of France, which Churchill had opposed for so long, drew near. He was a disappointed man. May the 7th, 1944. He looked very old and very tired. He said he could still always sleep well, eat well, and especially drink well, but that he no longer jumped out of bed the way he used to and felt as if he would be quite content to spend the whole day in bed. I have never yet heard him admit that he was beginning to fail. Then, on June the 4th, 1944, Rome finally fell to the British and Americans. With Nazi resistance beginning to crumble, they headed north through Italy. Churchill suddenly saw a last gasp opportunity. 
D-Day, June the 6th, 1944. The invasion of France was underway, with far fewer immediate casualties than Churchill had ever imagined possible. Two weeks later, the Russian army launched its summer offensive. While the British and Americans slogged their way through France, there seemed every prospect that all of Eastern and Central Europe would fall to Stalin, as Churchill had long feared. But now, at the very last minute, Churchill saw one final chance to win his duel with Stalin. After the fall of Rome, many of the British and American troops in Italy were supposed to be switching to the invasion of southern France, Operation Dragoon, which had been agreed at Tehran and was scheduled for mid-August. But British commanders in Italy now suggested a breakout via Trieste and Ljubljana into the Balkans and Central Europe, the very thing Churchill had always wanted his alternative strategy to achieve. The overall Allied commander, General Eisenhower, would have no truck with it. Witheringly, he cabled Roosevelt. Wandering off overland via Trieste and Ljubljana, repeat, Ljubljana, is to indulge in conjecture to an unwarranted degree at the present time. Cables flew across the Atlantic as Churchill and Roosevelt fought out the battle of strategies. Finally, Roosevelt confessed his overriding concern. I am mindful of our agreement with Stalin as to an operation against the south of France. I cannot accept without consultation with Stalin any course of action which abandons this operation. Churchill was enraged. Yet again, Stalin was dictating events. The planned invasion of southern France seemed to him pointless. On June the 30th, he drafted the strongest words he had ever written to the president. I cannot exaggerate the seriousness of this issue. The whole campaign in Italy is being ruined. If my departure from the scene would ease matters by tendering my resignation to the king, I would gladly make this contribution. But I fear that the demand of the public to know the reasons would do great injury to the fighting troops in the Mediterranean. But no one contemplated that everything that was hopeful in the Mediterranean should be flung on one side like the rind of an orange in order that some minor benefice might come to help the theater of your command. So strong was the language that Churchill, having drafted it, sat on the cable. That night, he met his military chiefs. General Brooke now realized the argument would get the British nowhere. June the 29th, 1944. Just back from a meeting with Winston. I thought at first we might have trouble with him. He looked like he wanted to fight the president. 
However, in the end, we got him to agree to our outlook, which is, all right, if you insist on being damned fools, sooner than falling out with you, which would be fatal, we shall be damned fools with you, and we shall see that we perform the role of damned fools damned well. A new telegram was drafted. Churchill reluctantly conceded, but told Roosevelt the decision was, the first major strategic and political error for which we, too, have to be responsible. It was the first time Churchill had admitted to Roosevelt his ulterior political motive. And as for consulting Stalin, what would be the point? As Churchill put it, with pained understatement. On a long-term political view, Stalin might prefer that the British and the Americans do their share in France in the very hard fighting that is to come, and that East, Middle and Southern Europe should fall naturally into his control. On August the 15th, 1944, Allied forces invaded Southern France in Operation Dragoon. Militarily, the invasion was a success reinforcing the push through France. As to whether Churchill's alternative strategy could have been more successful, opinion is divided. But one man agreed with him. Mark Clark, the top American general in Italy. After the war, Clark wrote, the weakening of the campaign in Italy in order to invade southern France instead of pushing on into the Balkans was one of the outstanding mistakes of the war. Stalin knew exactly what he wanted, and the thing he most wanted was to keep us out of the Balkans, a campaign that might have changed the whole history of relations between the Western world and the Soviet Union was permitted to fade away. Whether or not Clark and Churchill were right, there was nothing physically that British and Americans could now do to stop the Russian army occupying the nations of Eastern Europe and the Balkans. But would Stalin allow those nations their freedom? Roosevelt had vetoed the use of military strategy to block Stalin. It would now be up to him to persuade the Soviet leader to play the democratic game. Theirs would be the final duel of the warlords and decide what sort of Europe emerged from the ashes. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for our investigation into Churchill and Stalin's alliance. But make sure you tune in next week, where we will be looking at Stalin's unlikely relationship with Hitler. In the meantime, if you can't wait to learn more, just head to our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of documentaries you can watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.